Welcome to Scott's Thoughts. These podcasts give me an opportunity to share a little bit outside my regular teaching on Sunday mornings and give you some insight into some of the issues of today and some of the current things that we're dealing with. We also offer an opportunity to interview some amazing people. So let's plunge right in. Thanks for being with us. I was at my small group, kind of virtually, I guess we were Zooming, and uh, uh, the group, it's a men's group, and one of the participants brought up um, a passage in Isaiah they were looking through as they were reading the book and asking about prophecy as far as it 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 comes with modern day interpretation and it kind of opened an interesting dialogue so I went and did a little research and I wanted to take a minute just to verbally um, rehash what I've learned because probably by next week I'll forget it um, about Hebrew prophecy in understanding um, prophets in the Old Testament and how they apply to today you have to know a few principles the first principle is this is that prophecies are like mountain peaks uh, going in the distance which means they often have an, an immediate um, representation what the actual writer um, or speaker believed to be true about them this is the most significant and most important interpretation of them but sometimes they had a second interpretation. Um, so you get the book of Daniel and you get the prediction about the coming empires, which is really, really remarkable. I mean, you've got Daniel in, in the 580s or the 560s BC predicting the, um, the after the Persian Empire, the Greeks, the Romans, and, and, uh, and, and going over all these, these empires. Yeah, it, it is really remarkable um, how he does that. And then he predicts a, a final empire that's going to happen in the future. And the mountain peaks are those first empires all were fulfilled. The empire that was going to come after that was actually going to be God's empire. And that, that takes place in the distant future. So that's a mountain peak. You see the immediate uh, application in that the next over the next three or four hundred years those who are going to be interpreted and then you have this far off interpretation which hasn't been fulfilled yet um, so that's the first aspect um, some of the prophets uh, their writings had two applications some of them three and some of them as many as four mountain peaks we can look down at mostly because most prophecy in the old testament has been fulfilled already we can see it in the life and, and person of jesus we can see it in the their predictions about what was going to happen in the future and and some of these prophecies were hundreds of years in advance the second aspect of hebrew literature you got to know is uh, they were not a culture of many books they were a culture of the book which means the bible um, was so ingrained in their speech that it often came out in what they said and and uh, and their and their manners of speech in the in the years to come uh, for instance, is in the book of Matthew, uh, when it talks about Joseph who had fled to Egypt with the baby Jesus and and uh, was coming back to the area, he quotes um, the writer Matthew quotes the prophet Hosea, and says, um, "Out of Egypt I have called my son." Um, quoting a, a verse that originally just meant that that uh, God was speaking about the Exodus that had happened out of out of Egypt I called my son. But, but Matthew, being a good Hebrew, used the same figure of speech and quoted the scripture 
not because Hosea wrote that passage of scripture to predict that Jesus would come out of Egypt, but that it had this double meaning and, and, and this idea that the same way the children of Israel were carried out of Egypt, Jesus came back to Israel from Egypt. And so um, to say that Hosea writing that was thinking about Jesus is entirely false. He was talking about Egypt. Um, but when he, Matthew picks up on it and quotes it for Jesus, he, he uses it as a manner of speech, not as a, this is a prophecy and this is it being fulfilled. So there are aspects of scripture that are quoted that are really more just representations of, of linguistic style than they are of predictions and fulfillments. And you have to be, just be aware of that. When uh, you're a, a, a culture of one book, and, and we understand there were commentaries written about the Hebrew scriptures, and you know we've, we've got the, the writings in the uh, intertestamental period, the Maccabees, and, and uh, things that you find sometimes in the Catholic uh, Apocrypha. But, but there was very little literature in those days, and so you became literate, quite literally, by working on the Bible, copying the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, learning language from the Bible, learning your letters from the Bible. It, it's very similar to Western culture, up to about the early 1800s was very similar. People had one book in their house, tended to be a Bible. And that was what everybody read and spent, uh, paid attention to and learned how to speak. And, and those, a number of years ago, um, someone asked me to read a copy of the Book of Mormon. And, uh, and uh, if you're not familiar with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they're, they're a spinoff of Christianity. They're, they're, I, I, I would go so far as to say they're probably a cult, but... Um, one of the things they believe is there's all these scriptures that were written that are equal with the Bible or written in North American culture about formerly North America being under this empire was very much like the Romans and, and this and that and everything like that. Anyways, one of the interesting linguistic styles I picked up on was it um, used a phrase in the 1800s and it came to pass. Now, and it came to pass was a common literary format in the 1600s in the 1800s it was not used but joseph smith who is kind of an interesting character you ever get a chance to look into his life um was trying to write scripture or what he wanted people to believe was scripture and so he used 16th century english to write his new scriptures thinking that and it came to pass was actually some sort of divine way of putting things when in reality he was using slang from 200 years previous to make a point to somehow elevate the amount of his writing when in reality in the 1800s is not a phrase he would it would be commonly used and he didn't just use it once i remember there was one three chapters and i think it was there 15 times so this is this is uh this is, is kind of, you see those kind of things playing out in, in other people. The other thing about Hebrew prophecy is um, when you're looking at it, you have to understand it at least a little bit from a Hebrew uh, concept. And you have to understand some of the grander narratives of Hebrew literature. Um, the first is God's interaction with his people. Prophecy is not mostly foretelling. It's, it's actually most what we call foretelling. Quite literally, the prophets, the minor, major and minor prophets, the majors are the longer books and the minor are the, the shorter books. It's not that one was more important than the others. Um, most of them are made up of an ex God expressing himself through his prophet to tell people how he felt and to confront sinful behavior. 
And so when you're reading through a lot of the prophecies, you read, I'll go back to the book of Hosea, and you're reading through the book of Hosea, and, and, and God asks Hosea to, to marry a woman named Hagar, who's a, a prostitute. And, um, and, you know, that was something no righteous Jewish man, especially a prophet, would want to do. But God was trying to use his life as an example of how he felt about the children of Israel. And Hagar, his wife, leaves him and becomes a prostitute again. And then God asks Hosea to go and buy her back, quite literally pay the slave price to purchase his own wife's back from her handlers. And this would be utterly humiliating. And God wanted the children of Israel to see what it was like living with them, how quite literally they belonged to him, but they still went off and were unfaithful to him. And he quite literally had to buy them back and and humiliate himself over and over again to try and coexist with them and how much this grieved his spirit. And so a lot of it is forthtelling. And so when I'm reading that, there are principles I can pull out but it's important that I look at it from a historical point of view and go, why did they write this? I, I had a professor once say, any text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And, uh, and quite literally that what it means is, is I need to draw out from the scripture the meaning instead of interpreting or imposing my interpretation onto the passage. This is what scholars call eisegesis versus exegesis. Exegesis is what you want to do. You want to pull the meaning from the scripture and get a really accurate snapshot of why this person wrote this and what they were writing about. Eisegesis is, I go, oh, there's this sentence. It's really useful for me to make a point or to reflect on and all those kind of things. And God sometimes uses those passages to really shine a light on our hearts. But but it is improper for me to take that passage and to go, it means this one thing, when it has nothing to do with the writer or nothing to do with the people that were actually participating in it. So that's very important. And this is not a difficult thing to do, looking up context and things. We have more biblical aids than we've ever had. There is more um, great resources. Uh, the NIV Study Bible, the NLT Study Bible, there's great translations. There's some good websites. Uh, I recommend Bible Gateway. Another one I recommend is Blue Letter Bible. If you want to really dig in and get an original language and there's some commentaries and meaning and words and all that kind of stuff. I, I get a kick out of digging around that stuff. You don't necessarily have to do that. Um, it, often the English is, is the right interpretation. You just have to understand a little bit of the culture. And so it's not that hard to do to take five minutes or whatever before you read an epistle and go, where was this place? What were people like there? Why did he write it? And what was he getting at? And what was his main objective and goals? And, uh, and you can take a few minutes and, you know, find out Paul's relationship with the city of, of Ephesus or Coloss or um, Corinth or Rome even and and uh, and get a uh, and like I said you could study this stuff for hours and hours but it's pretty easy to get a, a quick synopsis now prophecy when we get into prophecy when we're looking at those mountaintop um, applications um, there are some cases where um, it's incredibly rewarding to look back and see what that passage or that prophecy uh, the application of it on the first mountain top. And sometimes, like I said, they predicted things hundreds of years in advance. Isaiah predicted the coming of a king named Cyrus. 
who was the name of the king, the Persian king, who was responsible for bringing the children of Israel back to the land. Remarkable. Hundreds of years before um, this guy actually came around, um, there's Isaiah using his name. Um, we, we often attribute the idea of, of the belief that the world was round to, uh, you know, some of them, the more modern scientists or Galileo or those kind of things. But actually in 600 BC, Isaiah said the same thing. Uh, there's a lot of really meaningful stuff in there. In Isaiah um, chapter 40 to 66, there's a lot of what we call Messiah writing that predicted Jesus as a suffering servant. You cannot read through Isaiah 53 and not not realize what the significance of Jesus was going to be. And so there you have a, an incredible prophecy, you have a great application, and you have Isaiah writing about what he believes is going to be the person who um, pays the price for the sins of the world. And so this is, you know, this is, is remarkable in itself. And so you can look back on uh, some of the Psalms, some of the prophets, some of those things about what they said about Jesus. But there's interesting, there's also passages, as I said earlier in Daniel, that refer to f a far away interpretation. And so uh, Daniel is writing about the end of the world. Um, Isaiah 66 is, is the first Old Testament reference that I'm aware of, where it talks about the concept of hell and eternity. Um, you get... Um, you get all kinds of prophets predicting things. You have even back in, in Moses where God talks about someday there will be someone like Moses come back and will be a representative. David, um, in all his writings, the writings about David, talks about the family of David and how a Messiah will come from that. And that at the end of the world, he's going to make everything right. As Isaiah quoted, the lion will lie down with the lamb. The idea that sin and death and all those kind of things will be done away with. And this is where people sometimes get hung up a little bit. And by that, what I mean is, is sometimes we perform eisegesis by looking at our day and age and then superimposing those events onto scripture. And this is something that was quite chick to do, especially in the 60s and 70s. Um, there was actually a writer named Hal Lindsey who used to make a fortune selling bestseller after bestseller about the end of the world and how, how the Antichrist was due any time and the rapture was about to happen and, and how all these re revelation prophecies were going to come, come you know, through it. And having been a Christian for as long as I have, I have seen this happen so many times. It almost makes me nauseous. You know, someone writing that Bill Clinton was going to be the Antichrist or they're writing that 1984 was going to be the end of the world or 1982. I remember I, I met with a man who was a Jehovah's Witness, and and uh, one of the ways if you debate people in cults is to kind of identify holes in their own organization. And one of the obvious holes in the in the Church of Jesus Christ, or sorry, in the in the Jehovah's Witnesses, is a number of times in the last you know 50 years they predicted the end of the world, and written articles on it. And it's kind of a way that, you know, you can kind of point to it. And some people deny it and you can show them from their own literature and, and all those kinds of things. It's, it's kind of an attempt to do a gotcha with people. Um, but anyways, I remember pointing that out to him and him going, yeah, we did. We did point to say the end of the world was coming. It didn't happen. And, and to him, it was kind of a non-argument to him. It was, yeah, we've you know said it wrong many times, you know, but I'm just choosing to look past that and still be a Jehovah witness, even though the organization that I think is, uh, is, is, uh, without error and is inspired predicts the end of the world regularly and gets it wrong. Um, and so 
this is is something i've seen many times in what people try to do so they'll look at something like the coronavirus pandemic or they'll look at 9-11 or they'll look at the mobilization of russian troops in in the ukraine or they'll look at israel making some significant move in one way or the other and they'll say aha this is it this is revelation one of the things we have to remember and jesus spoke about this in matthew 24 one of the statements he said was no one will know when it'll happen only the father and and we are in deep deep trouble when we as as followers of jesus christ start picking dates okay and so the understanding is you know well okay why did jesus tell us about the future why did he reveal these things he reveals them for a couple of reasons that are relevant if you're talking about end time stuff and they're very significant to the people they were written to and they're significant to us and these two points are absolutely essential the first is to be prepared we often live our lives as if we're going to live forever or that there are no consequences of our lives jesus and the prophets in writing these things say that's not true you you have one life to live and to live in the fear of the lord and acknowledgement of his grace and wisdom and justice is is what we're here for and to live like that doesn't matter he is irrelevant is a foolish foolish way to live because look this is going to happen at the end of the world god is going to intervene uh, i heard a great quote today and it was it said um, we all have two lives and the second one begins the day we learn we only have one life and and so writing about the prophecy is kind of an aha moment where i go okay things are not always going to be the same and things may be okay right now but they may get worse they may get better they may get worse but here's the thing i need to be ready i need to live each day by seeking first the kingdom of god and his righteousness i need to live for god in the day and i need to uh, trust him and the fact that there is an inevitable future where sin and evil and all these things will be reconciled is uh, a testament to how i should choose to live today the second principle and this one is just as important and especially important to the people that those prophecies were written to particularly in the new testament in the book of revelation is that they were written to encourage us why because in the end god wins that we are on the right side that the things we hate the things that beat us down in this life are all temporary sickness um, grief anger and death are all temporary they have an end date there will come a time in the future when they will no longer exist it quite literally says in the book of revelation the last enemy to be thrown in the lake of fire the enemy thrown is death itself can you imagine that no more tombstones no more funerals like john was writing to the church in AD 90 he wrote the book of revelation to a church that was being horrifically oppressed by the roman empire and and this is something that had really taken root about 30 years before that uh with an emperor named nero kind of a sick man and uh he quite literally set fire to uh, rome itself and then blamed the christians for it and so christians were being killed for their faith all over the place and in horrible ways torturous ways and so as you can imagine christians were often very discouraged by this 
but here comes john writing the book of revelation and writing he he writes one portion about babylon the 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 uh, enemy of god who will someday be um, confronted and beaten and and taken out and 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 the early christians had this way of looking at rome they used to call it babylon because babylon was a significant place to them a place of evil a place of idol worship a place where where that was always in opposition to god and his holy city was babylon when the jews um, in jerusalem were eventually beaten and taken into captivity where were they taken they were taken to babylon and so when john is writing the book of revelation about babylon he was quite literally writing about in a way that the the readers would go oh that's just like rome someday rome will fall it may look like this invincible unbeatable horrible place to us but we know someday god will win and that's that's one of the main reasons for prophecy when we look at prophecy we may say oh these are horrible events and you know the the sky turning dark and the sea turning to blood and all these kind of things and and interpreting what those mean exactly can be a really lost lost um um, endeavor because more often than not than then you say oh i know this is absolutely about this you're often proven wrong and it's not not that i'm against interpreting scriptures just what i mean when you say that is 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 john especially and the prophets use a lot of figurative kind of illustrative language that they uses a lot of metaphors and things like that and so so absolutely having definitive interpretations for every aspect of it can be wrong but there are aspects to it that are absolutely true you know, when Jesus talks about the river of life and the tree of life in the garden and all these kind of things, that's that's a significant part of what he is um, he's talking about. So a couple of things uh, just derived from that. One is, is that uh, I want to say to you is when you're talking about end times, this can be an interesting study, but it's one aspect of what you learn about. Um, I've seen people get so wrapped up in the end times or they'll get wrapped up in, in politics or they'll get wrapped up in creation evolution or, you know, they'll, they'll find some other rabbit hole to go down to, uh, down. And these people become so obsessed with it that they, they quite literally, they lose the joy of the Lord. I remember this guy years ago that I, I spent a lot of time talking with and, uh, he was obsessed with Obama. Somehow he felt Obama was an affront to the Church of Jesus Christ and and uh, and he was quite obsessed with him and he did research into where he came from and what his lineage was and who was his father and 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 was he, you know, did he have this this kind of um connection to, you know, dark forces or to the Muslim world and and all these kind of things. And it, it quite literally got quite silly. But, but I remember sitting him down one time and going, you know, Jesus is going to win, right? You know, you know that you getting wrapped up in this stuff is, is not going to help or dissuade God's plan in the end, right? Like, like when does a, when does an interest become an obsession? And, and I, I would always say to someone, I always say, look, it's Jesus, our passion our obsession, our love is for Jesus Christ, the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom and love of him and, and things. These, these side interests are there to point us to Jesus and to encourage us to follow him. 
They're not an end in themselves. And if you turn to Galatians 5, um, the writer writes about the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the flesh. And he talks about how if you have the Holy Spirit and you're serving the Lord, what do you see? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering, you know, all these kind of things. And, and the fruit of the flesh is what? Anger, divisions, rage, paranoia, all these kind of things. They kind of come from the flesh. When your godly pursuits create the fruit of the flesh, it's not God active in you. It's you allowing your flesh to dominate your faith. And that's not what we're called to. And so when you're reading prophecy, look into it. It's fascinating. I've, I've spent hours doing it. It really is an interesting study. It's something you can get excited about. But just remember the grander narratives of what prophecy is for. It is the, um, the listing of God's heart. It is a warning to us and also an encouragement to us. And it is a predictor of the fact that God is all-powerful, he is good, and he will overcome every shortcoming of this world. And the, you know, the kind of kickback from that is that we go, how then shall I live? And that's, that's quite literally what I want to encourage you to do. There are many thousands of things I could add to this, but uh, like I said, when this was fresh in my brain, I wanted to uh, take a chance and, and just do some words about it. I may pop this into a podcast, but uh, for today, I just want to encourage you. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you, God, that uh, those grander narratives are there and, and how you express your heart and your love, the intimacy that you have with your people. And you also talk about our future. And so, God, very rarely do you tell us exactly what's going to happen. But what you do tell us is that the future is in your hands and that you will see us through it. So we entrust ourselves to you. We pray, God, that as we study these things, they would grow our faith and our joy and our trust in you and would also help us to live alert lives of, of recognizing I need to serve the Lord and that God is God and that this life is not something I can give into waste, but I've been, I'm a steward of it and I need to use it. And so as we do that, Father, I pray you give us wisdom and insight. Help us to enjoy your scriptures for what they're intended for, to challenge and to encourage us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening with me. We hope this podcast has been encouraging to you. As we continue to put more up, we encourage you to listen to them and uh, refer a friend. And uh, please shoot any questions you have off to me, scott at courtthechurch.com. Thanks for being with us, and we really appreciate it. God bless. Thank you.